Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity we have this morning uh, to meet together online and to reflect together on your word and to be blessed by it. Please, we pray, help us to focus our minds and hearts on this text and to shut out distractions, uh, to resist that urge to multitask, help us to hear your voice loud and clear, and may it be an encouragement to us on life's journey, we pray as your people. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, in recent sermons, the topic of love has received a fair amount of airtime, and rightly so. We've been seeing that love is at the very heart of the Christian life, uh, no pun intended. In Tim, Tim Keller's talk on meaning, we thought about God's law being like a manufacturer's instruction manual. Of course, God's law is a law of love, and it calls us to perfectly love God and to perfectly love other people. So the point was, if we are to live as God designed us to live, according to the instruction manual of his law, then we will love truly, madly, and deeply. We will love God with all our heart. And we'll also love others as we love ourselves. And to turn away from love for God and others and to turn inward on ourselves ultimately leads to self-disintegration because we are moving away from our true purpose when we do that. And that theme also dovetailed very nicely with our sermon series in the Fruit of the Spirit. The aspects of the Fruit of the Spirit included, of course, love and joy. And yet we saw the joy comes from loving well, because we are fulfilling our true intended purpose. But here's the question that we are left with. Uh, to what extent do we truly love? To what extent? How deep is our love for God and for other people? Uh, when I look at my own life, uh, I can see examples in terms of how I love others, where I do make some headway, albeit still quite in a quite flawed manner. However, there are also plenty of examples where I can see that I remain self-centered. I have my blind spots and my love I see has limits. Well, Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan is designed to expose the extent of our lovelessness, but it has a positive purpose in so doing. Because you see, it's only when we see how far short we fall of God's standard of love that we're going to be humbled. And it's only then when we're humbled that we're actually in a position to receive God's help and ultimately to receive God's love. <clears throat> so our passage today uh, conveniently breaks down into three sections, uh, the theory of love, the practice of love and the challenge of love. So firstly, then, the theory of love. Now, the catalyst for this parable, <clears throat> pardon me, was a question posed by a religious leader to Jesus. Uh, he was a professional a leading authority in biblical law. He was a religious lawyer. Verse 25. On one occasion, <clears throat> an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. A teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, at first, this would seem to be a, a respectful inquirer, 
uh, he addresses Jesus as teacher. Sounds very promising. However, uh, Luke, the narrator, informs us of his motive. It was to test Jesus. That means to trap him. Uh, actually, this guy was a hostile inquisitor from the Jewish religious establishment. And he poses the question, doesn't he? Uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That is an important question, both for him and for us. What do we need to do to get eternal life? And this desire to, to test and to trap Jesus uh, stemmed from the wider hostility of the Jewish religious establishment towards Jesus. Because, of course, Jesus was not the sort of Messiah that fitted their expectations. The Jewish religious establishment had a skewed theology. Uh, this theology said that entry into God's kingdom was based on a lifelong striving to live by God's law. And therefore, the Jewish religious leaders were very suspicious of Jesus. They thought, hang on, uh, his teaching doesn't really fit with ours. Uh, this guy, Jesus, says that irreligious people can enter his kingdom and that they can enter it now. They don't have to wait until the end of their lives to see if they have achieved the standard of entry. Uh, for example, Matthew 21, verse 31, uh, would have sent the religious leaders on a real wobble. Jesus says this to the religious leaders. I'll tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. They've been going, what? What planet are you on? What is this guy's attitude towards uh, God's law? So this religious leader uh, is hoping Jesus is going to actually put a wrong step. He's hoping he's going to incriminate himself, uh, make some heretical statement uh, that he's going to be dismissive of God's holy law. And yet, of course, uh, the lawyer is up against the wisdom of God incarnate. And to seek to trap Jesus is really, <laughs> at the end of the day, a great folly. Or as we're going to see, with beautiful mesmerizing skill, Jesus is going to turn the tables and the trapper will become the trapped. Uh, Jesus starts by answering a question with a question. Uh, verse 26. He asks him, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And then the religious lawyer uh, answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, uh, yep, he's on the money. Uh, it's a good biblically sound answer. And Jesus says as much. Uh, verse 28, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. But then he says something quite startling. Do this and you will live. <laughs> Whoa, Jesus, hang on there. Uh, you can't say that. Uh, surely you should be challenging this guy's uh, legalistic self-righteousness. Instead, you seem to be reinforcing it. You're saying, okay, yeah, you can get eternal life. Do this and you will live. However, the lawyer's response indicates that this is not how he took it. Uh, perhaps it was the tone with which Jesus conveyed that last sentence. Uh, it seems that what the lawyer heard was, do you really love like this? The lawyer indeed responds defensively. Uh, he seems to feel the pressure of the demand to love his neighbor. We ask a question. This question is designed to hopefully uh, establish boundaries to the command to love his neighbor. Uh, 
it's a question which hopefully is, as far as the lawyer is concerned, is going to make the command to love his neighbor more achievable. He says this, verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And this verse actually provides the key for understanding the whole parable. For in this verse, we glimpse the lawyer's heart. We're told that he wanted to justify himself. In other words, he wants a means by which he can, through his own power and efforts, declare himself righteous before God. A way by which he can earn eternal life. And it's at this point again that we see this pearly pastoral wisdom of Jesus. This lawyer guy knew all the answers. He was a legal expert in God's law. This guy didn't need to be taught. He needed to be humbled. You see, his heart was encased in this almost impenetrable iron casing of overconfidence, smug self-righteousness. And the only remedy was to puncture it with a humble conviction of sin. Uh, this guy didn't need an intellectual lecture. He needed a practical convicting story. And that's what he gets. And so we move from the theory of love to the practice of love. Jesus now tells his famous parable. And of course, it's of a man who gets mugged and robbed on a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, the journey was actually a trip of some 25 kilometers, and it had a reputation for being incredibly dangerous. Uh, it wound a steep, rocky route through deserted desert places. Uh, it was surrounded by caves, which were ideal hideaways for robbers. Uh, normally, people would travel in large groups on this route for safety, but this man is on his own. And sure enough, he is attacked. He is robbed, he is stripped, he is beaten, and he is left for dead. And as he lies there, eventually, passers-by do pass by. And the first two people who come along are upright religious members of the Jewish religious community. Uh, they are Jews, like this man. Now, the lawyer, uh, remembering who Jesus is telling this parable to, the lawyer and the other Jews listening Jesus would have expected these two people in the story to help. And he, they would have been surprised when they didn't. But then Jesus introduces his third character, the Samaritan, who does stop to help. And the mood in the lawyer's heart and in the crowd would have at this point changed dramatically. They'd have been going, a good Samaritan? Are you out of your mind? You see, Jesus could not possibly have chosen a hero more offensive to the sensibilities of this audience. As you know, I'm sure from your general knowledge, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. They were sworn enemies. As far as Jews were concerned, the only good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan. And so we now move to the challenge of love. Uh, no doubt there is a deadly silence as the credits rolled at the end of Jesus' story, you could have cut the atmosphere with a knife. And Jesus turns to the lawyer to invite him to answer his original question. Verse 36, he says this. 
Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Well, the lawyer the swallows hard. He can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan, never mind to love him. Verse 37. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Well, this, man had, this man had come for a sparring match, but he now finds himself not just defeated, but convicted. Uh, could he love like that? In answering the question, uh, who is my neighbour? The lawyer had hoped for a boundary marker that would set limits and make it more manageable. Uh, to a Jewish mind, love your neighbour meant love your fellow Jew. Uh, the only area of debate in their minds would have been whether this included Gentiles who were now converted to being Jews. But loving Gentiles, and particularly Samaritans, surely that's just impossible. Uh, that is an impossible standard of love. So remember the, the lawyer's original question again, verse 25. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is saying, well, you should love perfectly, love other people, including even those whom really you hate in your gut. Samaritans, because the, the Samaritan has demonstrated that level and quality of love which God's laws requires. You see, this man was under this monumental delusion. He thought he could earn his ticket to heaven by good works. And so you now see the primary purpose of this story. It's to show the man he cannot possibly do that. Uh, the only way that he could think that this was possible was that if he lowered the bar of what God's law required. But once the true standard of God's love and his law is made plain to him, this man quickly discovers he couldn't do that. He falls way short of it. So do you see, uh, the purpose of this story is not primarily to teach us about our moral duty. That's not its primary purpose. It's actually to teach us about our moral bankruptcy. You see, this story is Jesus' demolition job on the self-righteousness of those who think they can get into heaven through their own efforts, through being good. And it's when Jesus brings us to this place of seeing and indeed accepting our moral bankruptcy that we are then in a position to actually be helped by Jesus. Because it's only then that we no longer come with these self-inflating questions like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Instead, we cry, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The only thing that we need to do to inherit eternal life is to humbly embrace Christ in faith. And so uh, I have to ask each of you this morning this question. Have you asked Jesus to have mercy on you? Uh, have you asked him to forgive your failures to live according to God's law of love? As the famous hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You see, there is no eternal life apart from a simple and sole trust in Jesus. 
Uh, Jesus says, you are morally bankrupt, but I have paid the debt. Jesus says, you can't justify yourself, but I can justify you. And that's because Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of this command to love that the Good Samaritan illustrates. Because you see, Jesus turned the Good Samaritan from fiction into fact. Jesus did live the perfect life, loving God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength and with all his mind. And Jesus did love all people as he loved himself, even his enemies. And yet Jesus also travels that same Jericho road, but Jesus travels it in the opposite direction to Jerusalem and all the way to the cross. And so now when we pray that prayer of confession and commitment to him, our debt becomes his and his flawless record becomes ours. So that's the primary purpose of this story of the Good Samaritan. However, there is also a secondary purpose. Having shown us the true standards of God's law of love, that is what Christ then calls his forgiven people to live out. Jesus invites us as his people to live lives of ever deeper love. Uh, Christ says to each of his followers, go and do likewise. Of course, this is not to earn eternal life, but rather in gratitude for the eternal life that we now have through faith in him. It's the call to love truly, madly, and deeply. And as we look more closely at the parable, uh, we see more clearly what true love for others looks like. Uh, the Samaritan excelled where the priest and the Levite failed. Uh, sometimes, uh, without realizing it, we make the same mistake as the lawyer. Uh, we seek to lower the bar of what constitutes loving others. And we place boundary markers. But of course, true love involves much, much more. So what do we learn about the nature of true love for others? For it's only when we see how actually we're failing to truly love others that we're then in a position to humble ourselves again before Jesus and to say, help me to love others and to love God more deeply. And so as we close, uh, I've got three practical areas uh, which come out of this story, uh, which help us to see what true love looks like. We're going to see that it is active, not passive. It is sacrificial, not shallow. And thirdly, it is indiscriminate, not selective. So let's look at the first of those. Uh, true love is active, not passive, thinking particularly now of how we love other people. Uh, the Samaritan took action. The Samaritan got involved, whereas, of course, the priest and the Levite chose not to. It would seem that the priest and the Levite defined love in a very limited, passive way. It would seem they said, uh, I am being loving so long as I don't inflict harm on others. It was rather a passive definition of love. Uh, their love didn't require them to 
actively do good, but rather just not to do evil. And this tendency not to get involved is a strong strain in all of us, I would say. Now, there was a famous case in New York in 1964, where tragically a, a woman in her late 30s was attacked and repeatedly stabbed on her way home. Uh, the attack happened in full view of many local apartments, and she screamed over and over again for help. And although up to 38 residents witnessed the crime, not one of them even telephones the police. When asked later why they had done nothing, the answer was always the same. We didn't want to get involved. True love is active, not passive. True love gets involved. Secondly, true love is sacrificial, not shallow. Uh, getting involved does carry risk. Well, the possibility that this beaten man was being used by the robbers as a, a bait to trap more travelers was a real one. There was real danger there. Uh, the same thought would have gone through the mind of all three of these traveler men who come to pass the beaten man on the road. And yet the Samaritan was prepared to take the risk where the Levite and the priest wasn't. The Samaritan, we're told, was moved by compassion in his heart. And his compassion was greater than his concern for his own safety. You see, he placed such an enormous value on a human being and he was willing to sacrifice anything to help. And he does indeed sacrifice uh, his own convenience and his own comfort to care. Uh, his schedule goes out of the window and he places this man on his donkey whilst he walks beside the donkey. And he goes the extra mile. He finds an inn, but he doesn't just dump this guy there and run away. He stays the night and commits to then returning to settle any additional expenses incurred. He bears a significant financial cost. He probably spends a month's wages or more on board and medical help. So you see, true love is sacrificial, not shallow. And true love is also indiscriminate, not selective. Uh, that was the whole thrust of the lawyer's question. Uh, but who is my neighbor? He wanted to be selective. And yet the Samaritan looked beyond ethnic factors. True love is not restrained by boundaries of gender or socioeconomic class. Uh, true love doesn't just love friends and family. It doesn't just love those to whom we feel neutral. It even encompasses those who we would class as our enemies. And it's a love that refuses to ask the question who, as the lawyer did, Rather, it asks, asks the question, how? Uh, living out such a standard of love is a tall order. And we cannot do it in our own strength. But not only does Christ command that we go and do likewise, but he also gives us the resources to do it. He gives us his indwelling Holy Spirit and the Spirit helps us to love. As I said earlier, when I look at my own life, I can see some areas where I love people in a costly way, but others where I have blind spots. We are all works in progress. 
we all need to grow in our ability to love God more deeply and to love others as we love ourselves. The question is not where we are, but in which direction we are heading. Are we growing in loving actively, not passively? Are we growing in a manner that is sacrificial and not shallow? Are we loving indiscriminately, not just selectively? Let me pray for us before we then uh, have a time of comments and questions. Heavenly Father, when we see the true standard of love, uh, perfect love for you and for God, the Father uh, and the Spirit, every moment of our waking lives, we see that we don't live that out. And when we see the standard is loving others as we love ourselves, we see that in many ways we fall short of that standard as well. Uh, please, we pray, help us to love more truly and deeply. Help us, we pray, uh, to move to a point where we love in a way which is not restricted, uh, which is a love which is active, not passive, sacrificial, not shallow, and indiscriminate, not selective. Help us through your indwelling spirit to do that, we pray, so that we live lives of greater joy and purpose and obedience to you. Amen.